readings this morning. In Jesus' name. Well, I'm not sure this morning if I have anything exactly new to share. But I just, sometimes for myself, there's things that I just need to I start reading through and realize I need to polish up some stuff in my life. Um, this morning, I wanted to talk about humility and servanthood. It's the title of the message, Humility and Servanthood. Um, ask a question first. What's the greatest gift that you can ever get? What's the greatest thing that you can ever do? I'd imagine if you went to New York City and walked up down the streets asking that question, you'd probably get enough answers that you could probably cover this wall over here with uh, all the answers you'd get. But what's the greatest thing that we can ever do? What's the greatest gift we can ever get? We all know we can sum it up in one word, can't we? Salvation. doesn't matter what is out there. The greatest thing that any person can ever receive is the gift of salvation. Whether they believe that now on this earth or not, doesn't matter. One day they'll face the truth. Salvation is the greatest thing we can have. There's nothing greater than having a relationship with Christ. It's not about calling myself a Christian. It's not about you calling yourself a Christian. That's not it. It's having a relationship with a holy God who's perfect, who created everything, who knows you through and through. And you bow down and say, God, I'm nothing. I actually have a wicked heart, and I need you. That's the greatest thing you can ever possess right there. You don't need anything past that, because if you have that, God will take care of the rest. That's a promise of God. But surrendering your heart completely to the point of where we believe that God is everything to us. God gave his life for me. And have a personal relationship and a personal walk with God is the greatest thing that we can ever have. To have a clear heart before God is tremendous. To be able to look up and say, there's God up there somewhere and I'm going to meet him someday in no hesitations is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. A life where Jesus keeps getting a little bit bigger and bigger all the time and we keep getting a little bit smaller and smaller. But you know that pride thing sometimes comes in and sometimes you like to buff up a little bit. But to have peace with God is the greatest thing that we can ever have. To daily just gaze upon God and know that I've surrendered it all to him. It's a great place to be. So salvation is the greatest thing that we can ever get. A gift from God. What's the greatest thing that we can do for God? I mean, how do you put that together? How do you have the greatest thing that can ever happen in my life is salvation i have peace with god how can i be great in god's kingdom what can i do to repay god how can i somehow do something for him you know sometimes you think well i want to do something great to let god know that i love him i feel like i owe him something i want to do something for him i want to give god everything i don't want to hold anything back i just want to give it to god i want nothing of myself I want everything for him so how do you do that how do you accomplish that goal? How do you fix that little void that might be in your life of going, what do I do? Well, I think I can answer that in one word. Humility. Humility. What's the greatest thing that you can ever give God? What's the greatest thing you can ever do for God? Humility. Humility is huge. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Exactly. Pride. You know, there's this force in this world that simply I just find amusing. 
This is maybe stupid on my behalf, but it's called gravity. And it constantly pulls the same rate, the same force continually. It affects everything. You know, we were out yesterday trimming branches on our property, and they're hanging down like this. And yet, at the same time, they're being pulled up, and yet they're being subject to gravity. Everything we do, if we drop something, it's subject to gravity. It just pulls everything. It affects everything on this earth. But, you know, I found there's something else that I believe affects every person on earth, and that's pride. I've heard it said that every sin can be traced back to pride one way or another. If you start searching through the sins, it it comes back to pride in our hearts. And it's just this constant little pull on us, like gravity is the only way I can describe it. It's just always gnawing at us. Somehow we like to stand up a little bit one way or another. But humility is the complete opposite of that. You want to do great things in God's kingdom, find the path to humility. Psalm 69 32 says, the humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. Proverbs 29 verse 23 says, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Man's pride shall bring him low. As we begin to become prideful about anything, about ourselves, no matter what it is, and we start to climb this little ladder of feeling we're a little bit better than somebody else, we, we, we become numb after a while. We don't actually feel what we're doing. It's kind of like having anesthesia. I remember when I had my finger, I cut it open on a saw one day, and it hurt, and they went and stuck this needle in there. A few minutes later, he's doing everything, and I couldn't hardly feel it at all. But as pride begins to grow in our hearts, it seems like we become more and more numb to it. We don't realize what's going on. And yet, it's actually bringing us low. We think we're doing better, and it's bringing us down. But honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 57, if you don't mind. I want you to look at this here. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. This kind of clarifies how I come to this point in my thinking. It says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high place and holy place. Then it says, with him also. I want to stop there for just a second. God's saying, I'm the high and the lofty one. I inhabit eternity. I own eternity. Eternity is mine. My name is holy, and I dwell in the high place, the holy place. And it says, with him also. What's that next part say? That is of a contrite and humble spirit. If you want to have a place with God, If you want to have a place where you feel like I'm part of God, it comes through humility. It says to revive the spirit of the humble and derive the heart of the contrite ones. This is the kind of heart that God can use. When we begin to have a humble and contrite spirit, we can actually more than just know who God is. We can begin to have a close relationship with God. Matthew 18.4, it says, Whosoever there shall shall humble himself... As this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, a little child, many of them we have in this fellowship now, but think about a little child. A little child's dependent upon mom and dad for everything. I mean, they can't do anything. They can't walk, they can't feed themselves, they can't change their diapers, they, they can't do anything. They're totally dependent upon mom and dad. That's, I think, what God's getting at with us. That's the dependency we're supposed to have on God to realize, God, I can't actually do anything. Without you. Okay? To come as a little child. 
When we can come to the part of we depend upon God for everything, that makes us great in God's kingdom. Matthew 23, verse 12 says, And whatsoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Total opposite theology than what you hear in the world. You know, we live in a society where they constantly pressure us to make yourself something. You have the right. You owe yourself to make yourself something. And you keep striving and you make something great of yourself. And as people become greater and greater, or they think they become greater, they become more and more powerful. And yet God's saying, if you want to become powerful, learn to become humble. Become the least. Because the power that God has is greater than anything we could ever possess. No matter how hard you try to be great, it's a failure. We need to learn to release ourselves and let God do the work. Let God control our actions. Let God control our speech. Let God control the way we handle situations. And it changes the perspective totally. But we have this thing inside of that says, I can do it. I can do it. Look at the sports world. Push yourself a little bit harder and you can do it. And we have that inside us where we think, if I push a little harder, I can do something good. That's not the place to be. We need to learn to get in the prayer clause and say, God, I can't do it. And if I do do it on my own strength, you know what? I can mess it up. And I can say that because I've done it millions of times in my life. When we have that little thing going, you can do it. Make sure it's coming from the Lord. Make sure it's God saying, I've got you covered. If I've got you covered, you can do it. Whatsoever shall exalt himself, it's going to be bought low. And a lot of times that abased, don't fool yourself. That's sometimes a pretty hard knock. Pretty hard fall sometimes when we get bought down. Some people, it's too far of a jump and they actually can't do it. They cling on to themselves. And he that shall humble himself shall be exhausted. God's going to take the humble and lift them up on his own terms. We don't have to do that. James 4, 6 says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but give grace to the humble. When we have pride, God simply says, I'm push, you're pushing against me and I'm pushing against you. You're resisting my spirit. You're holding me back. That's what happens when we have pride. God resists us. But he gives us grace, God's power, God's abilities, God's design, God's will, all those things. God says, I give that to the humble people. I make them excel. I make them do wonders. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord shall lift you up. First Peter five five. It says the very first part of First Peter five five says, Yea, all of you. Now, who's he talking to? Everybody that's in this room, whether they're here or out back, and anybody that should be sitting in the seat or could be sitting in the seat today that's not here, okay? That's who he's talking to. Every single one of us. There's not one person in this room that's exempt. From this statement, he says, Yea, all of you, every one of you, and then what does he say? Be subject one to another. Be subject one to another. We work together. Humility says we take people that are totally on opposite ends of uh, character, different theologies, different stuff, and God says, but all of you, be subject one to another. That takes the grace of God. Try and pull the world together into one big pool and say, we're all going to think the same way. We're all going to do the same things. We're all going to act the same way and everything's going to be great. It simply doesn't happen. But God says, every one of you can be subject to one another. 
But then what's the next thing in there he says? Very clear. Because we can't do that. If we all try to be all one, it doesn't work. He says, but be clothed with humility. Totally covered with humility. That's what God says. Once again, if we go back to God and say, hey, God, I need your help. God can clothe us with the humility we need that everything functions well together. Okay? It says God again, it says in here that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. But we're to be clothed in humility. You often think of the days when I read that verse. I think of the days when I lived up in Michigan, you had to go out there and shovel snow. You put on these boots and you put on your regular clothes and you've got these uh, pants that you wear that are out there for the snow and then a big heavy jacket and then the hat that goes on and the scarf and the winds are blowing so you pull it around. I mean, that's what I think of when I think clothed in humility. We should be all bundled up with God's humility. 5.6 Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. The mighty hand of God, the all-powerful God, God says, I've got it all under control. I've got big hands. I can do it. And he asks us, he just says, Humble yourselves. Let me do the work. I remember years ago, Splitting wood, me and my uncle used to go out there with the axes and mauls and all this stuff and split wood through the summer to get ready for the winter time. And then finally, uh, it was just me. And I was getting older, had things to do, so my dad gets this log splitter and just you put it in there and just push one little lever. And I was like, wow, that's simple. If we can learn to trust God with things and get under his mighty hand, God says, I'll lift you up. But it also says that one phrase there, in due time. And that just means something to me because I can get impatient. I want something done. I want it done now. And I, you know, But God says, in his due time, he'll lift you up. But whatever it is, that's God's business, not ours. If we feel like, oh, I want to lift myself up. I want people to know who I am. I want people to know I can do this. Whatever. That's not your place. That's God's place. You're his chess piece. Let God control you. We need to learn to let go and stop controlling ourselves. You know, growing up in the... Uh, well, I'll just say when I was younger, one of the big phrases that was out there, and they had these posters all over the place, and uh used to show a, a rope coming down from the ceiling and a big knot on the end of it and this guy holding on, and it always said, when you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. You know, that was that was really big back then. Now I say, untie the knot and let it go. You simply don't hold on to anything because God's going to take care of it. God has the ability. So who has to do the humbling? Who's got to do the work? I mean, God wants us to be humble. And he can do anything, can't he? So does God have to humble us? It's repeated in the scriptures over and over. Humble thyself. Humble yourself. He humbled himself. You see, we've got to make the part to say, God, I want to be humbled. God will always do his part. But we always have to do ours. Okay, If you're waiting for God to do it, you're wasting your time. God's looking to you say, show me that you want to be humble and I'll take over from there. Don't wait upon God because God's waiting for you. I know somebody who has got a really messed up doctrine and stuff and uses candles and incense and all these things. They call it worship and stuff like that. And the words of the Bible, you know, you can show them and they look at that and like, it doesn't mean anything. And like, if I'm wrong... God's going to show me. Because God can do everything. It doesn't work that way. That might make sense up here. But God's not going to grab you and force you. That's not the way God works. God's looking for us to say, Lord, I need your help. I'm getting desperate here. 
He's looking to the ones that will say, I need you. And God says, don't worry, I'll take over. I can completely handle your situation. But we've got to learn to get our hands off the wheel and let God take over. That's humility. But it takes us to make that first step always to say, God, please, I need you. And God says, great, I can take over. Humility lies within your will. You choose to be proud. Believe it or not, you choose to be proud or you can choose to be humble. So the grace of God is either going to resist you if you choose to be proud or the grace of God is going to empower you if you choose to be humble. It's our choice. You choose to be proud and you choose to be humble. And all that determines of how God relates to you. He's going to resist you or he's going to empower you. If it seems like some of these verses I'm repeating where they repeat themselves often, it's for a reason. But we can get to understand it. I just want to read through this here, James chapter 4. I'll tell you what, I'll just start in verse 1. Read through to verse 10. It says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war within your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and ye cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think the scripture saith in vain that the spirit dwelleth in lust to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's our part. God says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he's going to flee. And he says, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to us. He's waiting for us to make that step. Why is it that way? I don't know exactly. I could say, I wish it was different. I wish God would just do everything. We had to do nothing. But that's where, that's not the way God made us. But God says, you do those things. You draw nigh to me. You show you want to be humble. And God says, I'm going to be right there. I'm going to give you all the power you need. I'm going to give you all the abilities you need. He says, now cleanse your hands. You know, that's part of our part. You know, all these things show that we need to take a step towards God. And God says, I can do everything from there. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Proverbs 18.12, it says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Many a man has been destroyed. But it's by his own will. The heart of destruct, of the, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. You know, pride, like I said, just keeps, we keep getting, it keeps lifting us up and lifting us up. And then we come to a point of where it's almost like we get numb. And yet God says, that's going to bring your destruction. And yet, 
I'm not sure how to word this right. I struggled real hard thinking this through, but, you know, if we want any type of honor, any type of, I've done something good, okay? It says before honor is humility. You see, it's not our lifting up. If we have humility with God, God's going to lift us up. God's going to, people are going to look and say, wow, so-and-so did a great job there, or whatever it may be. And we look up and say, yeah, but it's only because of God. You see, God gets the honor all the way through that. We walk humbly, and God blesses, and the situation works out. It's humility, and God lifts us up. And yet we look at it and don't say, yep, you're right, look what I did. We look up and say, thank you, Lord. It wasn't, God, I could have done anything. Look, open your Bibles, if you don't mind, to Proverbs 22, verse uh, 14. Proverbs 22, 14. It says, By humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor in life. Now, riches, honor, and life. If you had to define that, What's riches, honor, and life? What would you define it as? How would you put into perspective what life really is? What makes life great? What makes something good? Okay? What does it mean to you? A lot of people, it's their standard of living. I go into a lot of homes. And it's their homes and their vehicles and the stuff that they have. It makes them something. When they reach that point, they struggle for years and they struggle for years to get the things that they have. And they get there and like... I've got life. I remember somebody who had this big camper and all this big fancy camper and everything, and he tried to convince me, like, Bill, you have to have one of these things. This is life right here. He was just, you have to. And I'm sitting there going, A, I couldn't afford one if I wanted to, and B, I can't see how that would make me happy. But he reached his goal. He had a business. He had his camper. He had, that was life. He was totally happy at that point. Some people, it's their businesses or their bank accounts. You know, what brings life to you? What makes you think, I've got a good life. I'm living it good. I know people who it's doing, climbing, you know, huge mountains and stuff like that. They get up there and it's like, this is what life's all about. All kinds of things out there. Is it maybe when people think well of you? You know, you strive to do things to attract attention to yourself. Maybe you show off or maybe you've got to be successful. And you just somehow want people to notice something about you. And you feel, if people like me, well, that's attractive. That, that's good life there. Okay? list can go on and on and on and on of all the things that we can have that makes us something. Is honor, riches, and life, whatever you come up with to you, is it that? Or is riches, honor, and life Jesus Christ? If I have Christ in my life, I'm happy. And you might sit here today and go, well, I know that. that that's easy. But start talking to people. How real is that? Do you say, I want Jesus Christ in my life, but I also have to have whatever it is. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be as happy. You see, it's when Christ becomes our life. That's the root of things. When we go past that, that I have to have something else we begin to get discontent in our heart. But you know what? If you have Christ as a central part of your life, he's going to give you those things. You'll have a home, whatever that is. You'll have 
the vehicles you need or whatever it is to get around. God wants to provide for you. He's not trying to say, I want to take everything away from you and you've got nothing. Just me and you sit something. That's not what God's after. God wants to bless you. But it's not prosperity that's the issue. It's the relationship that's the issue with God. These are the fundamental things that we have to have dear in our hearts. Because God will take care of all your needs. God will be there for everything. Three, in my mind, key factors to having joy in our lives. And the gift of salvation, true humility, and being a servant. If we have those things lined up in our lives, a lot of things can fall into place. I want to read this story to you. Um, it's not it's written by Eula uh, Crowell. But I just want to read this. A chosen vessel. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the one of gold. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be the best. The master passed on with no word at all. He looked at silver, a silver urn, narrow and tall. I'll serve you, dear master. I'll pour out your wine. I'll be at your table whenever you dine. My lines are so graceful, my carving so true, and my silver always will compliment you. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though I am fragile, I will serve you with pride, and I'm sure I'll be happy in your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved, and solidly it stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bull said, but I'd rather be used for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had that vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and to make whole and to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I'm hoping to find. I will mend it and use it and make it all mine. I will not need the vessel of pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big mouth and shallow and loud, nor the one who displays his contents of proud. Not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthen vessel filled with my power and might. Then he gently lifted the vessel of clay, mended it and cleansed it and filled it that day. Spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour into you. Please do not think that God cannot use you. He's looking for those who humble themselves and seek after him. He's able to make and shape you in the very best vessel imaginable. We don't need to do anything to make ourselves useful because that's where we mess up. But it's God 
who turns around and takes something that's a vessel that he can use and he molds it and makes it what he wants to do. And that's exactly what God wants to do in each and every one of us. If we want to be useful for him, and we know that God knows everything, why not let him do the work? Matthew 20, verse 20. We're all familiar with this. We've been through it just recently. But it says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him, desiring certain things of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, one on the right hand and the other on the left hand in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink that cup? That drink I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They said unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given for them for whom is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called unto them and said, unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall be not so among you, but whoever, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever shall be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came, not being ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. To be chief says, and whosoever will be chief among you. Chief means to be just what it sounds like we know the word means, to be first, first in line, first in honor, first in any type of succession, first in rank, be the first in time and place. But it says, whosoever among you will be chief, let him also be your servant. Think about it. Jesus He's the great I am, King of kings, Lord of lords. All power in heaven and earth was given unto him. He was God himself in the flesh. By him, this entire universe, not just this planet, the whole universe is held together. All that power, all that might. And yet, look at his life here on earth when he was being an example to us. He had to take care of himself. He worked for others. He healed the sick. He washed the disciples' feet. He allowed somebody else to baptize him. He walked from village to village. Have you seen the way these modern uh, evangelistics travel these days? The plains and all this. I mean, it's royalty to the max. And Jesus just walked. He didn't even have chariots. He walked. He healed he healed the lame, the leprosy, on and on. He had compassion on the suffering. And then he suffered the cross, the pain of the cross, for my sins, for our sins. Not his own, but he suffered the pain of the cross for our sins. A servant is not above his master. So why would we put ourselves above Jesus? If he was a servant, shouldn't we be servants also? You know, David repeatedly called himself a servant unto God. 
Abraham, Joshua, Joseph, Job, all called themselves servants. And Paul called himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Epiphras says, he's, um, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. Timothy said in his letters, he's a servant of the Lord. Philemon said, now as a servant in the Lord. Onesimus called himself a servant. James said he was a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said he was a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude said he was a servant of Christ. And in Revelation, God calls John and Moses his servants. And ladies, yeah, there's some there too. There's Phoebe, Tabitha, Mary, Priscilla, those that were servants of God. Through their humility, they became servants of God. Ones that God pointed out as true servants, not because of what they accomplished. That was God's work but because of the humility that they possessed in their hearts, and God used them. And these people became great servants of the Lord. Would we call ourselves, how can I word this the right way? Are you a Christian by title? Or are you a servant of the Lord Jesus that makes you a Christian? There's a difference in there. I can call myself a Christian, or I can do the things that make myself a Christian. Philippians chapter 2, verse, um, let me look over here, 9. Yeah, Philippians chapter 2, let me read that. It says, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of the things of heaven, the things of earth, and the things under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus deserves that, doesn't he? Okay? God says, I highly exalted Jesus. He says, I've given him a name above every name. And that his name, everybody in heaven and earth is going to bow before him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But back up to verse 7, where it says, speaking about Jesus, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He didn't have to do that. But Jesus humbled himself and God lifted him up. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself inside the Lord and he will lift you up. And verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Jesus followed that same exact pattern. question I had is thinking about this us fathers what would our family think if we got alone with each of your your wife and children what would they say would they say my dad's my husband he's a great servant what about you ladies if we talk to your children and your husband would they say mom's a great servant she's always there for everybody is that the testimony of your life that we're servants.
in Psalms 31.16, it says, Make thy faith to shine upon thy servant. And then it says, Hide not thy face from thy servant. It's okay to say, God, I want to be a servant. David did it. Here's one of the things that he said. He gets before God and he's like, Lord, make your face shine upon me. I want to be thy servant. He also said, I am thy servant, Lord, loose my bones. David was not afraid to call himself a servant. In Psalms 119, David said, Establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Go before God each, I'm sorry, go before God each day and talk to him and say, God, I want to be your servant. We saw it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see David crying out to God and saying, Lord, I want to be your servant. So what makes a really good servant? Do we have to do a lot of great things? I mean, if somebody says, okay, I'm a good servant. Mondays, I go to the prison ministry. Tuesdays, I go to the children ministry. Wednesdays, I lead out in devotionals. Thursdays, I go out and I pass out tracts to people. Friday, I do Bible studies. Saturday, I help my neighbors do things. Sunday, when I come, I'm always ready. I've got something in my mind. I've studied. I'm ready. I'm going to have something to share. You can have somebody say, well, what do you do to be a servant? Like, I don't know. I was out working yesterday in my yard, and I saw my neighbor out there, so I gave him a glass of iced tea. That's about all I did. So who's the better servant? Who that has this whole list of things that they do or somebody that's like... I'm not sure if I was being a servant or not. What makes you great? Jump over here to Mark chapter 9. I think it's verse 41 I'm looking for. Okay. 41 says... For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. You see, it's not um, how much you do that makes you a good servant. It's in whose name you do it. If you're doing things in the Lord's name, you're being a servant. If you're doing things for yourself, that's not good servanthood. A servant does things for others, for Jesus, not himself. Um, we can go to Matthew 25, verse 36 there is where Jesus, is, Jesus was speaking and he lists all these things that were done about uh, visiting the sick, taking care of um, the strangers, going to the prisons, all these things he listed as being a servant. There's many things that we can do to make ourselves servants, but there's also many things around us that just need us to be there for. We don't got to go far and wide to become a servant. Simply, um, as fathers and husbands, providing for our families, we can become a servant. We don't have to add a whole bunch of extra things on there. Um, For the wives to take care of their their homes, preparing food, taking care of the children, changing the diapers, all those things. Rest assured, you can say, I'm being a servant. We don't got to run out and find something special to do. I want to read this story. It's called Being a Servant. And it's directed mostly towards leaders. 
But if we look at these, this story here and kind of look at it as being Christians, brothers and sisters, there's just a few points in here that I thought were pretty good. It says in here, Jimmy lay in a hospital bed dying of congestive heart failure. He had been a member of a local church for three or four decades. And now as an ailing old man, he wanted more than anything in the world to see his pastor come and visit him. He knew that his time on earth was almost up. He knew his time was short, yet he had been in the hospital with a failing heart for several days, and the pastor had not seen him. I really wish he could come see me. He knows I'm here. Why won't he come? It says, I was in the hospital room with Jimmy for two days before he drew his last breath. He became unconscious, and I don't know if his pastor had ever come to visit him. But God impressed something on my heart that day that I'll never forget. He says, when God calls us to be pastors, he calls us to be ministers. A pastor is a caretaker, a minister, and a servant. He calls us to be servants of the church, washers of the, uh, foot washers of his people. Our purpose is to serve the flock when a church member walks into the church on Sunday morning. We should look at them and think in our hearts, I'm their servant. That's a hard thing. Our pride intervenes and cries out, but I must be their leader. That's what God has called me to do. The best way to lead is to serve. Jump in and show them what it means to serve. Show them what Christ means when he washed the disciples' feet. If we seek to be great, we shall be the least in his kingdom kingdom at all. But if we seek to serve, to be the least, we shall be the greater. We should not be too proud to plunge the church toilet or to get our hands and knees down to wash the floor to help serve the food church line for dinner. By serving, we are not only fulfilling God's commandments and call in our life, but we are also providing an accurate role model for Christians in the church. If we model everything that the world expects from a leader, then that's what model the folks in the church will try to emulate. And we'll have all kinds of worldly leaders, but no one to serve. But if we model service, if we model the servant's heart, the people will emulate that also. It's ironic that the greatest leader really is the greatest servant, which is why one cannot learn to lead until they have learned well to serve. A mayor, a bureaucrat, a police officer, a town manager, a legislator, a judge, all are servants of the people in the worldly sense. They are our servants. We pay their salaries. We pay their health insurance. We give them their office, their car, their authority. Everything is given to them by us in order for them to serve us. Many do it well. They remember that above all, they are servants and that they do a great job working good for the public. Others, however, get a little power, a little money, a little authority, and they become become consumed with pride and lord over us instead of serving us. Or they seek solely to advance their careers and their fortunes instead of promoting the good of the people. They decide that they are better than us, although they are nominally a public servant. There, There is not a servant's thought in their whole mind. Our nation suffers greatly because public servants who have forgot their calling. And our churches and communities suffer because Christians who have forgotten their calling. When someone is sick, we could visit them. Not just the ones who have a little money or influence, but all of them. We could be ready to set aside our busy schedules to go and sit with a sick person or spend time in the afternoon with a lonely person or to help our neighbor build a chicken coop or to counsel somebody or help somebody who's in crisis. Just as Jesus stooped down to wash the feet of his disciples, 
all Christians should follow his examples and become servants of those who God places in our daily path. That word servant, the Greek word is, I'm not sure I can say it right, but doulos is how it's pronounced. And the word servant actually means to be a slave or a bondman. One who gives himself to another's will, devoted to another to the discretion of one's interests. One in a state of subjection, one being subject to a king. A person who voluntarily serves another, one who yields obedience to another. These are all parts of being a servant. One who makes painful sacrifices in compliance with weaknesses or wants of others. I wanted to look at Exodus in closing. Uh, Exodus 21. Um, starting in verse 1, it says, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and he shall have borne the sons and daughters, the wife of her children shall go, shall be her masters, and she shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges, and he shall bring him unto the doorpost, the door, or under the doorposts. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Question is, have we been to the doorpost, the humility, servanthood? Or did we have the year of Jubilee come up and we slipped out the back door? Does our life show the earmark that we're servants of God, that we're Christians, that we have humility, and that the Lord is our Lord? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to praise you and thank you for the many, many blessings you give to us. Father, I just pray that all of us can learn to become your servants, to humble ourselves before you and say, God, we simply can't do it, but we need you to help us. Lord, help us to learn what true humility means in our hearts and in our lives so that those around us can see a true and living Jesus. And Lord, help us to uh, not get so wrapped up in our lives that we don't have the time to do the simple things that we can do to show servanthood for Christ. Father, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.